Ephesians chapter number 2 this morning. We're going to be looking at verse number 11. We're going to finish out the chapter, Lord willing, get all the way down to verse number 22. Now, we've sung quite a few hymns this morning. Let me turn that off. Uh, Quite a few hymns this morning that have spoken about the blood. And blood's not something that we like to talk about. I don't know about you, but for me, as I get older, I get more and more of a wish when it comes to blood. I do. I don't mind injections. I don't mind that. But when I see blood coming out of my body, it makes me go all, all crazy. It really does. The last time I had to, I praise the Lord, I don't have to go to the doctors that often. But the last time I did, usually it's, you know, for the, the checkup and he sends you to get your, 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 your blood done. Or bloods, as we like to call it. Get your bloods done, right? So I'm down in, this is down in Spalding, and I'm down and I go in. And basically they had opened the part of the hospital up to just do all these blood things. And I walked in and I'm like, this is like a vampire's blood bank. There's just people <laughs> ever. And I'm starting to, and the, the lady's going, you okay? I'm like, yeah, you know, because I'm not going to faint, I'm a man. But <laughs> get out into the car, and honestly, I was all over the place. I had to sit, you know, nobody likes the sight of blood. Nobody likes it. You know, you talk to paramedics, you talk to doctors, you talk to police that respond and see these tragic accidents and blood everywhere. It's horrific, it's a brutal scene. But when you get to the biblical narrative, blood runs through it from Genesis to Revelation. And especially when we get to the cross. I mean, there's blood everywhere in the Bible. But at the cross, it's the blood of Christ that is shed. And the Bible speaks about the blood time and time again. But because people don't like blood, don't like the sight of blood, don't like the thought of blood. There's a movement within Christendom to remove the blood from the biblical narrative from the hymns that we've sung, we've sung even that hymn, Channels Only, Blessed Bastard, and blood was repeated in it time and time again. The Wesleys, when they wrote their hymns, they wrote hymns that included the blood. Uh, in fact, in the hymnals that were published, 31 of their hymns, the word blood appeared in, in, in 31 times, sorry, the word blood appeared in their hymnals. His blood can make the vilest clean. There's a fountain filled with blood. What can wash away my sins? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Many denominations use those hymns and sing those hymns. In the 1989 Methodist hymnal, not one mention of the blood in regards to atonement. Not one mention of the blood. Let me show you this picture. There's Jesus on the cross. This is the number one, two, three, top images. You search Google, Jesus, death of Jesus. You'll find this image. Now there are many problems with this image, but what's the one number one main problem about this body and the way that it lies? Clean. Clinical. Where's the blood? Because the cross was brutal. 
Jesus' punishment was brutal. He was battered. He was bruised. He was bloodied. That's not the Jesus that hung on the cross. Where's the blood? We don't like it. I don't know if you've seen the passion of the Christ. And that's brutal. Brutal. But yet, to be there would have been more brutal. Said that in the showing of the passion of the Christ, there was um, initial showings, there was two people suffered heart attacks because of the, the great trauma that the cross scene, Christ's torture, did to them. It was brutal. The blood was absolutely, truly everywhere. And in scripture, the blood is everywhere. It's everywhere. It's everywhere. From the first animals sacrificed in Genesis to make those, uh, you know, covering those garments from Adam and Eve to cover their shame. To the book of Revelation where the Lord comes back with his garments dripped in blood. It's everywhere. The Bible paints the picture as the blood as the centerpiece of our atonement. That we can be right with God because of the blood. And not just any blood. It's the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The perfect son of God. Who died and gave his life for us. It's life giving blood. Life sustaining blood. So we don't want to remove the blood. We want to exalt the blood. We want to rejoice in the blood. No matter how gruesome that scene might seem. It is the scene of our redemption church. We believe in the wonder-working power of the blood. And that we'll sing about the blood. That we'll not shy away from the blood. Because it's the blood that brings us to Christ. It's the blood that paid for our sins. It's the blood that is above any other blood. It's the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. We're not ashamed of it. Because the blood applied to our accounts... Is a glorious application. And that's what we want to talk about this morning. There's a modern hymn song, whatever you want to call it, sung by Charity Gale. Some of you may know it. Some of you may uh, sing it um, to yourselves as you're kind of listening to your Spotify or whatever it may be. It's called, Thank You, Jesus, for the Blood. Now, let me read the course to you. The course goes like this. Thank you, Jesus, for the blood apply thank you jesus it has washed me white thank you jesus you've saved my life brought me from the darkness in the glorious light that's what the blood applied does it's a glorious application so we don't want to erase the blood we want to exalt the blood Why? Because of all the things that I've said to you and what Paul's going to say to us in Ephesians chapter 2 verse 11 to 12. Because we're going to get into this glorious application of the gospel truth of the shed blood of the Lord Jesus Christ on Calvary's cross. And what it means for us when it's applied to us. It's beautiful. So what does the blood do 
Firstly, the blood brings near. So Paul starts here in verse, verse 11 and verse 12. And he, and he brings us to a point and he says, remember your past. You know, if I could say what Paul was thinking in his head as he writes this. He's writing to us. He's writing to them. He's writing on the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And he says, remember your past. Look at verse 11. Wherefore, remember that you being in times past, Gentiles in the flesh, who are called to uncircumcision by that which is called the circumcision in the flesh made by hands. That at a time you were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers from the covenants of province, having no hope without God in the world. Paul says, remember your past. Gentiles, not Jews. What did that mean? Without Christ. Now, <clears throat> what I want you to pick up in this, as you read from your scriptures this morning and see that it says without Christ. Christ is Christos in the Greek. Christ is Messiah. That's what it means. But it, Paul doesn't say you were without Jesus Christ. He, he says Christ. He says you're without a Messiah. Not a saviour. A Messiah. That the promises to Israel were not for the Gentiles. He says you're without Christ. The aspect here is the covenant blessings that are given to Israel. And Paul says that you were Gentiles. You weren't part of that. You were without Christ, without Messiah. You didn't wake up every day and think about the Messiah and the Messianic line and the Messianic kingdom. That's for Israel. That's not in the thought of the Gentiles. It wasn't given to the Gentiles. It says you're without Christ, without Christos, without Messiah. It goes on to say aliens from the commonwealth of Israel. The state of Israel. That word commonwealth is politeia. In the Greek, it's the body politic. You're not part of that party. Aliens, strangers, distant, no part of it. He goes on, strangers of the covenant of promise. Aliens, no part of those promises of Abraham, of Isaac, of Jacob, of Moses, of David. Those great promises that God had given. Now you can look at indirect application in the Abrahamic covenant, but ultimately it's given to Israel down that line. Paul says you're without Messiah. You were aliens from the commonwealth of Israel. You were strangers from the covenants of promise. And then what he says, having no hope. Because the Gentiles lived with Gentile gods. That had no covenantal promises that they backed up. That had no care for the people and compassion like Jehovah did. They were false gods, failing gods. And the Gentiles soon realized there was no hope in these gods. That they were barbaric, demonic, immoral. That's why when the gospel of grace goes out to the Gentiles, they eat it up. 
Because it's the only thing that offers hope. Paul says that your past was that you had no messianic hope. What a sorry state you were. That's why Paul springboards to our present. Look at verse 13. But now, let's just stop here. But now, this is what you were, hopeless, cut off, no access. But now, in, now notice the change here, Christ Jesus, Messiah, Saviour. See what Paul does. The church. This is who you are now. You've entered into this. There's a distinct change here in Paul's language. You didn't have Messiah, but now you have Messiah and Savior. Why? Because you've entered into the promises of God. My goodness me. You were. Let's read on. Sometimes far off. But you're now made near or made nigh by the blood of Christ. I've watched uh, recently a documentary about a, a prison in Northern Ireland, which I probably wouldn't recommend to you, to be honest, because the language is atrocious. But, you know, if you come from Northern Ireland and you know the way that Northern Irish people speak, you know, every so often there'll be a word that's not a swear word. So <laughs> just to make it, make it a sentence. But it, it's, it's rough and the people are rough. And the prison's rough. But there's such misery. Such, it's heartbreaking, really. Anyway, but I'm watching this program in McGabry. And I, and I remember, as I was watching that, I was thinking about my time in McGabry. Now, let me caveat that. I was, I've never been uh, charged with any criminal th- thing. Okay, So I've, I have no criminal record. I've never been in prison. Uh, illegally. Or illegally, sorry. <laughs> See, I knew this is... There's a reason why the Lord didn't want this live stream, right? <laughs> but actually, I have been in McGabry working. Um, because, ironically, <laughs> I still worked while I was, while I was in the paramilitaries. But, um, so I was in McGabry working. And we used to work in the prisoner's telephone systems. And the prisoner's telephone system, McGabry, credit system. You have to you know, go to the phone with your credit and then you can use the phone. And it would listen for words. And any kind of dodgy words, it would flag it up so that the, the prison officers knew what was going on in the conversations. Okay? So I used to go in and, and, and work on this. If there was maintenance needed done, we had a maintenance contract with, with them. But what used to happen is when you were in and you're working kind of on the switchboard and you're in this you know, big kind of room with all the electrics and you know, phones, utility kind of closet type thing. But if there was a lockdown in the prison, the siren would go and the doors would lock. And that was it. You were stuck there until somebody came and opened that door. But do you know what? When you're in a place where you realise that you have no choice in getting out of that place, and everything depends on what's going on on the outside of that door, it can be a little bit intimidating, especially if the room's small. Let's think about this in relation, you know, that... Without God, we are trapped. I want you to get that this morning. Without God, 
You're not opening that door. Just like I'm stuck in my cabaret with my screwdriver and my snips and whatever bits of tools that I have. There's no way I'm getting through them doors. Electronically locked. Not happening. I am stuck until somebody comes and gets me. That is us without God. No access until God comes and gets us. We cry it unto him and say, Lord, save me. And he opens the door. He says, come. Come. And then we have access. Access. Why? Because of the blood of Christ. A far off, cut off. But because of the blood, we now have access to God and to the promises that God has given. All because of the blood. The brutal cross of Christ the Lord of glory hung upon a tree broken covered in claret face ripped back ripped and yet God takes that scene And that's what he uses as part of the redemption of our very soul. Listen to what John Phillips says. The crucifixion of Christ was the ultimate expression of man's hatred of God. Wasn't just the Jews. Wasn't just the Romans. It was all of us that put Christ to the cross. An act of high-handed rebellion and outrage. Yet God, or but God, turned the crucifixion into the means of grace. The ultimate expression of his love for us. No greater manifestation of kindness can be imagined. We don't erase the blood. We exalt the blood. Why? Because the blood brings near. And the blood brings near, but it also breaks down. Paul again puts us in this path of remembrance and he says there, look at verse 14 with me, remember our peace for he is our peace who hath made both one and hath broken down the middle wall of partition between us having abolished in his flesh excuse me oh I've lost my face Having abolished in his flesh the enmity, even the law of the commandments contained in the ordinances, for to make himself of twain one new man, so making peace. And that he might be rec- he might reconcile both unto God in one body by the cross, having slain the enmity thereby, and came and preached peace to you, which were far off, and to them that were nigh. Paul makes us remember our peace. And he says, Christ is your peace. He's your peace. Because the blood breaks down. What does it break down? Here Paul brings us to the middle wall of partition. Now, got some slides for you because we're going to talk temples. This is Herod's temple. Let me just uh, move a little bit with that. Uh, This is Herod's temple. Um, Different temples throughout the, the... Biblical period, but 
Herod's temple is a temple that stands when Jesus walks the earth. Herod's temple stood until AD 70 when the Romans came in, Titus came in, wrecked it, ruined it, fulfilling what the Lord said would happen. But in, in, in Herod's temple, there's four courts. Four courts. There is the uh, court of the Gentiles, which is, let me get my little thing there. This is this area there. Okay, court of the Gentiles. There's the court of the uh, women. There's the court of uh, Israel. And then there's the court of the priests. But the court of the Gentiles is that a Gentile could come in here and they could go no further. This little balustrade that goes around is a barrier. It's the middle wall of partition that Paul is referencing here. That they couldn't go close to this. The the Gentiles weren't allowed to get anywhere nearer than that. And if they did, if they went further than that, then they would face death. This is a, a, a tablet that was dug up and found. It's now in Istanbul, one of the museums. And you'll see the, the inscriptions translated in there. This was inscriptions that were found have been placed in the balustrades of these temples. So that a Gentile that was walking that maybe got a little bit ambitious and thought, you know, I'll go in and I'll just take a little step over and have a wee peek, have a wee look in. It says, not one foreigner is to enter inside the around the sanctuary. This is just translated directly, so we don't have our English in there. The sanctuary barrier and embankment. He who seized himself is responsible for following the death penalty. So basically, what it meant was, what the signs were, they were in Latin and Hebrew and Greek, that they were on there to say that the Gentiles could come so far but no further. And if they did... If they went a little bit further, it was punishable by death. This is a big thing in Judaism. This is not like, oh, it doesn't matter. You know, oh, we'll let you away with it. They took this very seriously. Turn to Acts chapter 21. Acts chapter 21. Verse number 27 there. Paul's last visit to Jerusalem, Jews stirred a crowd, grabbed Paul in the temple, and made allegations. Verse 21, or chapter 21 and verse 27. <coughs> Excuse me. And when the seven days were almost ended, the Jews, which were of Asia, when they saw him in the temple, stirred up all the people, laid hands on him, crying out, Men of Israel, help! This is the man that teaches all men everywhere against the people and the law and this place and further brought Greeks, Gentiles into the temple and have polluted this holy place. For they had seen him before in the city with Trophimus, an Ephesian, whom they supposed that Paul had brought into the temple. Now Paul was innocent of this charge, but this charge was serious. This was serious. No Gentile could go and cross that wall of partition. I want you to understand that Gentiles were dogs to the Jews. Not little puppies, not Andrex puppies carrying little toilet rolls. But scavengers, mongrels, dirty. 
said the dogs would roam and eat whatever they could find, whether it be dead body or rotten food. Unclean. Disgusting. That's who the Gentiles were to the Jews. Why? Because the Jews had got puffed up in the fact that God had given them all these promises. Now they were to be a light to the world. But instead they were light to themselves. And they viewed the Gentiles as polluted, contaminated, disgusting and not worthy to be in the presence of any Jew. If a Gentile was walking uh, in front of a Jew and it kicked up dust and the particles of those dust had come and and touched uh, the Jew in any way or if he thought that, he would go and he would wash ceremonially because he was unclean. Just because a Gentile walked in front of him and might have kicked up some dust. This is the deepness of the distance between the Jew and the Gentile. And the wall that was up between them, the barrier that was up. And Paul used this barrier, this physical barrier, as a picture of the great division amongst the Jew and the Gentile, both spiritually and physically. And what he says is that the blood breaks down. You now have peace with each other together. At the cross... Brings us together. Why? Because the blood breaks down. Breaks down every barrier. Socially. Economically. Racially. Under the blood. There are no walls of petition between us. Now we try and build our own. But the blood breaks down. And we have peace, not just with God, but with each other in the body. Scripture tells us that there's three classes of people, the Jew, the Gentile, and the church. Jew, Gentile, or church. Jew and Gentile together. Peace, because the blood breaks down. So he says, remember your peace. And he also says in verse number 18... Remember your privilege. Ephesians 2 verse 18. For through him we both have access, Jew and Gentile, by one spirit unto the Father. Beautiful. Blood breaks down these barriers. Here's a mock-up of the tabernacle. The tabernacle is the first dwelling place of God in this in terms of a structure. <clears throat> and this is his design. This was given to him. This is a pattern from the heavenlies. Now, we're going to do the tabernacle at some point. We're going to look at it. But this is, this is what God chose, designed, pattern from the heavens. And when you look into the tabernacle, you'll see this beautiful truth. And you'll see the Lord Jesus Christ there. But I want you to see that even with that, there's a perimeter. There's a wall of partition. That people could come so close but go no further. And then the priests could go and they had to go in through the gate. Let me take you through the flow. So this is overhead. And as you look at this, this is the gate. This is a picture of Christ. 
John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. Because the priest would come and the first thing that he was presented with was this altar of sacrifice. Where blood had to be shed. Animal killed. Then they moved into the presence, towards the presence of God. Because this is the little uh, tent that God chose. Two compartments, the holy place and the most holy place where the covenant, uh, the Ark of the Covenant, presence of God was. Only the high priest could go in there once a year on the Day of Atonement and he had to go with blood. So here we have the entryway in. Sacrifice blood. Then we have the, the brazen laver where the Priests would wash their hands and their feet because sacrifice is a messy business. This is the picture of the word, the washing. Sanctification is what it pictures. Then they would have went in to the holy place where they had the menorah, the candlelight. They had the table of showbread and the altar of incense where the worship would take place. Let me give you another view. Let's follow this through. This is Jesus Christ. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes unto the Father but by me. How do we get there? Through the gate, the door. Who's that? That's Christ. The sacrifice. Who's Christ? Who sacrificed? Christ's sacrifice. Washing of the water of the word. That's how we're cleansed. Sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. And then we move into the place of fellowship and worship. Fellowship in the light. Where does the light come from? The menorah. It's God's light. The Holy Spirit. The bread of life. He sustains us with his word. And then we offer worship to him. This is the truth. I am the way, the truth, the life. This is our fellowship. And then finally, what we have the Father. The presence of God. This is the cross. This is Calvary. This is Christ. This is what the blood of Christ has done for us. That we can come to God, to the Father. That we can go and walk there because of the blood applied. We don't have to stand outside the perimeter. We have peace with each other. We have peace with God. We have access. The barrier is broken down. And we can walk boldly to the throne of grace. Right Where the presence of God is. Why? Because of the glorious blood applied. See the blood breaks down. It brings us near. But part of that bringing near. Is breaking down the barriers. Between us and God. And between Jew and Gentile. Together in one body. So the blood brings near. The blood breaks down. And look with me and see finally that the blood builds up. Look at verse 19. Here Paul brings us back again to remember our place. Now therefore, you're no more strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints, And of the household of God. 
And you're built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the cornerstone, in whom all the building fit framed together, growing unto a holy temple in the Lord. Paul reminds us of our place, that we're no longer strangers. He brings us to the point of fellowship. We're not strangers and foreigners. We're fellow citizens with the saints. He says you've got fellowship. No longer strangers. He says you've got a family. Part of the household of God. And he says you've got a foundation. What's that foundation? Jesus Christ. The cornerstone. The one that sets it out. The stone that's hewn out first, that sets the angles for everything else. Built upon by the apostles and prophets. Put together, fit together in Christ. In the apostles and prophets teaching. This is doctrinal truth that holds us together. Paul says you're part of that. You know, if you're doing a building, if you're building a building, you do the foundations, maybe do the wall and the structure, and you'll have certain people for that. And then you'll add to it, you'll bring in electricians, you'll bring in floors, carpenters, whatever. There's a place for each and every one of us in the work of God, in the house of God, in the fellowship, and in the family. It says, in whom all the building fit firmly together. That there's no odd parts. No bits left out. I don't know how much you do DIY, how much you do flat pack furniture. Who's had a battle with flat pack furniture? (laughs) Right? Stick with Ikea. That's what I say. But some of them, honestly, you've got spare bits, holes that don't line up, bits that don't fit. Church isn't like that. You may be sitting here this morning saying, I don't fit. (coughs) Yes, you do. If the blood's applied, the blood builds up. And if the blood's applied, you have a place in the body, in the building. That's secured by Christ. It's built by Christ. And you have a part in it. And we all come together perfectly. Why? Because that's what God said. Except the Lord build a house, they that labour in vain that build it. We can take an application from that, but we need to let the Lord build the house. And when the Lord builds the house, each and every one of his children has a place and a part in that house. No exceptions. You may feel like they all poured out under the blood. You're not. You're not. He says, remember your place. And then he says, verse 22, remember your purpose. In whom you're also, you also are, built together, what for? For a habitation of God through the Spirit. Paul says in Corinthians, what? Know ye not that your body is a temple of the Holy Ghost, which is in you, which you have of God, and you're not your own. This building is the church. It's not walls like the Jews built. It's the church. It's the body of Christ. 
And each and every one that is under the blood, that has the blood applied, has the presence of God living within them. Paul says, remember that you've got a place, but you've also got a purpose. The purpose is that you are building together for habitation of God through the Spirit. I wonder, do we truly think about that first? When it comes to our bodies and how we look after ourselves. Now, I absolutely understand that I sit up here as a middle-aged fat man. (laughs) And I'm saying this. But I've been really challenged about this. I've been really challenged. So I am starting to exercise, praise the Lord. Not to make myself look good. But because building a habitation for the very presence of God. God dwells within me. In this body. I should look after it. I should be worried about what I put into it. I should be. Paul says, remember your place, remember your purpose. These are all things that are made possible by the blood that builds up. So what have we said this morning? Let me conclude and bring it round. Number one, the blood brings near. We were far off, strangers from messianic hope. No access to God, but for the blood applied. The blood brings near. Number two, the blood breaks down. The barrier between Jew and Gentile. The barrier between us and God. Gone. We have peace with God and should have peace with each other. Why? Because of the blood applied. Thirdly, The blood builds up. That we're not just left. We have a purpose in the work of God. That is we're blood bought for a purpose. Not just to hang about and sit about and wait for the Lord to return. But the blood applied should mean something in our lives. It should drive us. That's the power of the blood. Brings near, breaks down, it builds up. We want to exalt the blood, not erase it. You know, despite the fact that there are large portions of the so-called church today that want to reject the blood, I'm so thankful this morning that the Heavenly Father didn't reject the blood. Turn with me and we'll wrap this up. The John chapter 20. Excuse me. John chapter 20. And we're going to read from verse number 1. And we're just going to flick through three passages. And I want you to see see something. John chapter 20, verse number 1. The first day of the week cometh Mary Magdalene early. When it was yet dark unto the sepulchre, and seeing the stone taketh away from the sepulchre. So she comes to the tomb. 
And she runs and comes to Simon Peter and to the other disciple whom Jesus loved. You can tell John's writing this. And said to them, they have taken away the Lord out of the sepulcher and we know not where they have laid him. Peter therefore went forth and that other disciple who came to the sepulcher. So they ran both together and the other disciple did outrun Peter and came first to the sepulcher. And he, stooping down and looking in, saw the linen clothes lying, yet he went not in. Then came Simon Peter, following him, went into the sepulchre. And seeing the linen clothes lie, and the napkin that was about his head, not lying with the linen clothes, but wrapped together in a place by itself. Then he went in also, that other disciple, which came first to the sepulchre, and he saw and believed. For as yet they knew not the scripture, that he must rise again from the dead. Then the disciples went away again into their own home. But Mary stood without the sepulchre, weeping. And as she wept, she stooped down. She looked into the sepulchre. And seeing two angels in white sitting, the one at the head, the other at the feet, where the body of Jesus had lain, they say unto her, Woman, why weepest thou? She said unto them, Because they have taken away my Lord, and I know not where they have laid him. And when she had thus said, she turned herself back and saw Jesus standing, and knew not that it was Jesus. Jesus said unto her, Woman, why weepest thou? Whom seekest thou? She, supposing him to be the gardener, said unto him, Sir, If they have borne him hence, tell me where they have taken him, and I will take him away. Jesus said unto her, Mary. She turned herself and said unto him, Rabboni, which is to say, Master. Jesus said unto her, Touch me not, for I am not yet ascended to my father, but go to my brethren and say unto them, I send unto my Father and your Father and to my God and your God. Look at verse 27. Verse 27. Then said he to Thomas, Reach hither thy finger, and behold my hands, and reach hither thy hand, and thrust it into my side, and be not faithless, but believing. Jesus says to Mary, don't touch me. Jesus says to Thomas, touch me. Jesus says to Mary, you can't touch me, because I'm not yet ascended to my Father. You're going to make me unclean. So what happens in between the Thomas and the Mary? Turn to Hebrews chapter number 9. Hebrews 9. We're nearly there. Hebrews 9. Verse number 1. Then verily the first covenant which had ordinances of divine service and a worldly sanctuary. For there was a tabernacle made. We've looked at that this morning. The first 
wherein was the candlestick, the table of showbread, which is called the sanctuary, and after the second veil, the tabernacle, which is called the holiest of all, which had the golden censer and the ark of the covenant overlaid round about with gold, wherein the golden pot had manna and iron's rod that budded, and the tablets or the tables of the covenant. And over it the cherubims of glory shadowing the mercy seat of which we cannot now speak particularly. Now when these things were thus ordained, the priest always went into the first tabernacle, accomplished the service of God. No Gentiles, not all the Jews, some of the Jews, the priests, Levites. Verse 7. But into the second went the high priest. So this is the progress. That prius where the father was. Where the presence was. Where Jehovah was. The priest alone. Once every year. Not without blood. Which he offered for himself. And for the errors of his people. So the priest went with blood. Blood applied. Once a year. To atone for the sins of the nation and his sins. Verse 8. The Holy Ghost this signifying. That the way into the holiest of all was not yet made manifest. While the first tabernacle was yet standing. Which was a figure for the time then present. Which were offered both gifts and sacrifices that could not make him that did the service perfect. As pertaining to the conscience which stood only in meat and drink and various washings, carnal ordinances, the things of the law, the Levitical law, all these processes, the things that we, uh, the Jews used to do to bring them into the presence of God. Verse 11. But Christ, being come a high priest of good things to come, by a greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this building, so not earthly, heavenly. The tabernacle in the Old Testament wilderness was patterned from heaven itself. And this is where the writer of Hebrews points us. Verse 12, neither by the blood of goats and calves, this blood of animals that were regularly shed and applied to these things, had to be done over and over again. This rolling sacrifice time and time again. And then it says this. But by his own blood. He entered in once to the holy place. Having obtained eternal redemption for us. What happened between the Mary account and the Thomas account is that Christ ascended and he presented the blood and walked into the Holy Holy. And Jehovah God, Father God, said this is acceptable. No need to repeat. Once for all, forever. The perfect blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's his blood that brings near. It's his blood that breaks down. And it's his Blood that builds us up. There's nothing like it. Nothing like it. So I have one question. That I want to ask you. And I'm going to borrow 
from the words of a hymn that we're going to sing. Simply this. And I ask this honestly and directly. Have you been to Jesus for the cleansing blood? Are you washed in the blood of the Lamb? Are you fully trusting in his grace this hour? Are you washed in the blood of the Lamb? If you're washed in the blood of the Lamb this morning, you have received a glorious application of divine blood that has covered your sin, that has saved you, brought you near, broken down the barriers between you and God and between Jew and Gentile. The blood that has built you up and put you in a church, in a place, and give you a placement, give you a purpose. What a glorious application of the blood. Don't leave this place. Please to God, don't leave this place without the blood. Because it's only with the blood of play can we be near to God. Let's pray.